Hi, I'm Kara O'Keefe. And I'm Susie Rigdon. You're listening to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of Watershed Lit. We're celebrating 23 years of the Fall for the Book Festival by sitting down with writers across the genre spectrum. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to visit fallforthebook.org to find out more about our virtual festival. Kara, today we're going to be talking to Heather Young, author of the novel The Distant Dead, which is a literary thriller mystery book set out in the the desert of Nevada. And uh, one of the main characters of the story is sixth grader Sal Prentice. And he really left an impression on me because he's so watchful. He's so observant. And so I wanted to talk to you about child narrators in adult stories and like what draws you to them. I think that's such a, a, an interesting thing to think about because people have such different reactions to, to, to child narrators. There are, there are, there are a lot of readers I know who talk about finding child narrators like artificially precocious and, and, and it doesn't work for them. But I think there are so many stories that, that do it really, really well. And I think there's something really interesting about a child narrator commenting on the adult world because when a writer gets it right, those kids are just like so naturally curious and observant about the world. And it offers this really unique perspective on it, um, on the adult world. And at the same time, you know, like on the other hand, there are sometimes child narrators who are kind of taking in the adult world and are still too young to process certain facts about it. Um, but they're the kind of things that a reader can pick up on, even if the child who's telling the story can't quite communicate what's happening. There, there are writers who get it really, really right and let the reader know what's happening, even if the narrator as a child can't see it yet. And I think that can be so effective. Yeah, that makes me think of the child narrator in Emma Donahue's room, which of course was made into that motion picture. And But the reason the, the book succeeded so well in that front is you only saw through this child's eyes in this horrific situation of being like locked in this garden shed for their, his entire life but it's just normal. And so there's like that cognitive dissonance where we know something is very wrong, but the child, you're just viewing it through this unfiltered set of eyes. Yes. It's um, it, it adds this whole other level of just that disturbing, unsettled feeling when you're reading something like that. And you can see the child reacting to it in a, a way that feels so inappropriate to you as the adult reader, but you know, that's exactly what's natural to the child. I teach a a, a book uh, called We the Animals by Justin Torres sometimes. And I really love the the narrator in that because he's this this young child who's, you know, really only like seven years old when the book starts. And and he grows up a bit over the course of it. Um, But there are so many things that you start to understand about him, his relationship with his brothers and his parents that just he, he, he himself is still trying to work out and, and I think it, that's one of those books that does the child, the child narrator really, really well. In one of our panels that we're going to be having at this year's festival, we're featuring Chilean author Maria Jose Ferrada, who writes the book, How to Order the Universe. And it follows a seven-year-old and her father, a traveling salesman in the Pinochet era, which of course, it's a dictatorship. There's a lot of things that go unsaid. There's a lot of danger and things like that. And I really loved what what she was saying about this. So, you know, check it out at the end of October, check out this interview. You know, she's saying that for, for kids, they can capture the incongruity and the contradictions and the absurdities of the adult world unfiltered. It's a, the children become a mirror for us to look through and, and see our world and see all of these things that maybe you can't voice as an adult, or you're just used to it, but yet it's so wrong. 
I love the the child's perspective in that story as well because you know even like from the title how to order the universe one of the first things you see this young girl doing is making sense of these very large ideas through basically the story she tells herself of like the different items that her father sells as a traveling salesman and it's it's that kind of perspective that I don't think would ever work with an adult narrator. I was really curious as as we were prepping for this conversation um we were working on a list of of these books and I'm looking I'm looking at it right now as we're talking about this and all of these books are extremely heavy. Their topics Aren't are they? very yes. very heavy. There it's death, it's abuse, it's uh drug abuse and death in the case of of the distant dead. So it's so curious that that is when the author pulls back or leans in however you want to view it and and goes with a child to tell this story. Like they're the only people who can tell it. I, I wonder if it's something about that perspective that doesn't fully understand everything that makes it an easier story to tell somehow. Because if you're going to the adult perspective, it, it's almost like they have too much baggage to tell a story like that clearly, or maybe it's that they're too fully impacted by it. I don't, I don't know, to be able to, to tell the story I'm trying, I'm trying to think through how to say this, but think, like thinking about Maria's book again, you know, she talks about the fact that there are all of these like silences because, because it's the adults who really can't articulate things as well, or, or it's, it's just too much for them to be able to do it in a way that it's not the same for the kids because they can't quite yet feel the impact of what's happening. I'm really curious to hear what Heather has to say about Sal, our sixth grader, who is often silent, who is the watcher, who makes up yeah. these grand biblical battles between angels as like part of his life and coping mechanism, but who also, you know, is the person to find the burned body of his math teacher. So I'm really, really excited to, to talk with Heather about this and about so much else um, in, her, in her novel, The Distant Dead. We're so excited to be talking with Heather Young today. Heather Young earned her law degree from the University of Virginia and an MFA from the Bennington College Writing Seminars. The Distant Dead is her second novel. Welcome, Heather. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So The Distant Dead straddles a lot of different histories. We have people's personal histories, secret histories, family histories, even the whole Paleolithic history of the Great Basin. There's so much to unravel in there. Could you talk a little bit about how you crafted such a web of histories and why each piece ends up being so important to this narrative? Um, Well, as I wrote the book, I started to realize that what it was really about below everything else was was about the power of stories and about the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and why we make the choices we make, the stories that we bring forward from our families and our communities, and the stories that we forget over time, the ones that get lost to time. And the more I delved into that, the more I felt it enriched the book and the experience of writing it, to pull all those stories in and show how they gain and lose power over time. I think it's really interesting especially how stories are used to create bonds or sever bonds. You know, I want to talk to you a little bit about Sal Prentice, one of your three narrators. And that's, you know, that's one of the ways Nora bonds with him at first is the story of the the original people. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, Adam is, is bonding with him, Adam Merkel over, you know, stories of chess and the universe and how math does everything. So that's very interesting. So in talking about 
Sal, Adam Merkel describes him as a watcher and, and that's what he does. He watches and, and learns all about the adults all around him and their complexities of their lives. The two-part question, how did you approach writing this narrative with three, three perspectives and especially that one of them is such a young kid? Yeah, so my first book had dual perspectives. Um, the chapters interwove between the perspectives of two women and particularly for a debut novel, that was really, really hard. And I resolved that my second book would not be like that. <laughs> but as I started to write it, I started to realize I initially started it with simply Nora's perspective, and she was living in the period of time six months after um, Adam's death, and she's trying to figure out what happened. But I realized in writing this that I don't enjoy writing stories where I'm having one character observe and relate stories from an outsider's perspective. I wanted to have the story of what happened before Adam died in the story, in the moment in which it happened. It would let me dig deeper into the character motivations and the twists and turns of plot that led to him being burned to death up in that remote area in Nevada. So when that happened, I realized I needed to tell the story from Sal's perspective about how he and Adam became close. And then <laughs> as a mystery writer, you all, and that is always the, the part that challenges me the most in writing a mystery. I needed to have clues and story and information coming from the perspective of the small town that Sal lives in, but that wasn't Sal's perspective. So then I had to add Jake, the third narrator, uh, telling his perspective of Sal from you know, his own community. So it just got more and more complicated it was difficult to juggle, but I felt like it enabled me to do everything I wanted to do with the story. Jake has a very clear picture, and, and Nora too, of Sal and his situation, his family life, the poverty, which we're going to talk a little bit about. What unique opportunities did writing a sixth grader as your protagonist offer you in storytelling? Really interesting opportunities and challenges. I think that someone who's around the age of 11 or 12 has a very distinct and kind of unfiltered view of the world around him. He hasn't yet been kind of, I don't want to use the word corrupted, but changed by life experience. And he doesn't have as much um, knowledge with which to process what he's observing and seeing. So it's kind of a pure, undiluted way of looking at the world. And I liked being able to offer that perspective. Nora has all of her own baggage and her issues with her father and what's going on with the fact that she's trapped in this town. And I like that because it can it really colors her story. But having Sal there as a as another point of view character and allowed me to play with this kind of, you know, I don't know, honesty and purity of someone who just doesn't have a lot of context in which to place the world around him. I, I think that's so interesting to think about his perspective as as being unfiltered in a way. One of the things that's interesting about him is that child's perspective gives us an interesting insight into the town of Lovelock and the, the opioid epidemic that's that's happening there, including through the through those uh, those characters that Sal meets in the park. All of those characters really do appear like sympathetic and understandable in Sal's eyes, and I, that, that that feels like it's it's very much related to what you're saying about his kind of unfiltered perspective. C could you talk a little more about your process of researching the opioid ep um, epidemic and weaving it into your story? and into this town. Um, it, it, it's such an interesting thing to think about, this very heavy uh, topic, um, but also how you you, feel, you do filter it through Sal's perspective in those moments. 
Yeah, I did. I mean, I don't have a lot of personal experience with opioid addiction. Um, neither myself nor anyone I know very well has has dealt with that. So I did have to do a lot of research into both the causes of the of the epidemic of opioid addiction and how it impacts people. And a lot of that, because as a storyteller, I think you want to get to the actual story livers to figure out what what your story is. So I spent a lot of time in chat rooms online and on websites where people struggling with opioid addiction would gather online to talk about either trying to manage their addiction or try to kick their addiction. And it gave me a really humanizing perspective on, on how actually scarily easy it is to fall from what we see as sort of a normal functional life into a life of addiction. And what I wanted to do in this book was, was present different perspectives on substance abuse and addiction. There are characters who think that it's the fault of the drug cartels and the dealers that they get these people hooked on this stuff. There are people who think that the users have made a personal choice, that there was a point at which they could have said no and they didn't say no and now it's their own fault. And then you have Sal who really doesn't see either perspective. He just sees the people and their struggle and he comes into it without understanding that the consequences of opioid addiction. He believes he's selling these people medicine that they can't get through their health insurance. So he thinks he's doing them a service and only over time does he come to realize what a problem, the problem that he is a part of. And so he's kind of this, again, sort of neutral, um, naive perspective to kind of balance out the other two ends of the spectrum. I think about when you're talking about this, his kind of first interactions with the older gentleman who just wants to talk about his daughter and his life. And, you know, it is such a human interaction and it's not what you would think of as an addict, but then you also have the young mother who, you know, is itching on her arms and things. So it's a really nuanced kind of variety of people that he's interacting with. And the fact that he like is remembering these details about this guy's life that I think that also just speaks to Sal's watchfulness. As yeah, well. I, I find it really helpful as an author to have a character who's really perceptive, <laughs> um, who can who can give you really nuanced insights into other characters, even if it is filtered through innocence or their own baggage or whatever it might be. And, and having Sal be this really natural observer of people was was interesting and kind of helpful to me in telling the story. I could give him a unique and very direct insight into people because of his natural empathic gifts. Absolutely. And one character we haven't talked about yet uh, is the setting, really. And it really lives and breathes these towns of, of Marzen and, and Lovelock. And I'm really curious, has there been any reaction to your book's portrayal? I'm, you know, I'm thinking of just like the abject poverty Sal lives in and, and the perceptions between the towns, the rivalries. Well, so the town of Marzen I did make up. A lot of this story does talk about like what it is to be an outsider and the town of Lovelock is is kind of an outsider town really when you look at places like Reno and and the Bay Area. Um, those people would think of people in Lovelock as, as outsiders. I wanted there to be a town that that Lovelock considers to be an out an outlier town as well, and so I made up the town of Marzen, but in portraying Lovelock. I wanted to portray it very honestly, but I also did have worries about how it would come across to people who live in the town. To answer your question right up front, I haven't heard from anyone who's read the book who lives in Lovelock. 
I have heard from people who used to live in Lovelock or lived in the area who have said that they feel like the portrayal is pretty accurate. But I'm a little nervous <laughs> about what Lovelock people would say. I, I did try to, again, because I went there and spent a fair amount of time there and talked to people about their lives there and, and really kind of why they, they, they chose to stay. I mean, most people in Lovelock were born in Lovelock. Very few people moved to Lovelock. And their answers were pretty consistent. They stayed because their families were there, because their communities were there, because they knew everyone in town and they had a safety net and a support system. And, and that was worth staying for. So in the book, I try to present that in, in, in tertiary characters and also in Jake, who, who loves his little town of Mars and, and can't imagine why anyone would want to leave. So I hope to present the the perspective of living in a town like that in a in a fairer way than just oh it's this horrible place in the middle of the desert where everyone's poor and is addicted to drugs <laughs> that speaks so much to what we were talking about earlier with this 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 sense of personal and family history and um and how that history plays us so much into how people feel connected to that place in a place like lovelock I, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and ask you about your writing process. This is your second book. Um, and you've talked in some other interviews about it's kind of like some of the challenges of, of the writing process. And I'm curious how this book was different from your first book, The Lost Girls. Did you learn any lessons from one to the uh, one to the next? And and was anything surprising in, in, um, in writing your second novel? Well, I like to, to quote my editor who she was, the, I had the same editor for the first book and the second and I struggled with the second. And at one point she and I talked and she said that the first book you write teaches you how to be a writer. And the second book you write teaches you how to be an author. The difference being that an author is more of, more of a professional, I wanna say, like someone who's doing this for, as a job, for a living, who has contractual obligations, who has expectations on them from the community of readers Back when I was writing my first book, I was just a mom who drove kids around to soccer practices. And when I wasn't doing that, I wrote a book. So it is a different experience being a published author than it was being kind of a aspiring writer. And the things you learn in that second book are how to be disciplined and dedicated and focused and to protect your time and find your space and, and protect, you know, guarded at all costs from the people around you. And that was a process that took some time. I feel now as I am writing my third book, I have established those boundaries and it's going better. But the second book I think is where you establish those boundaries and, and learn the tools of discipline and stick-to-itiveness where you actually write when you don't feel like it <laughs> that I didn't have to do when I was writing the first book, which I took eight years to write because I didn't, I had all the time in the world. And you're yeah. trying to like, learn those those new tools of discipline during a very challenging time too <laughs> yes although i wrote this book before the pandemic so i didn't this right now this third book i'm writing during these times and it's got its own challenges from that but <laughs> any insight you can give us on what your third book is about or is that off limits <laughs> it's not off limits it's it's hard to describe at this point but it is i tend to like as i'm discovering to set stories in very small towns um this next book is set in a small town in Iowa, and it's set in World War II in the early 1940s. So it has a an historical element to it. Fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Heather. It's been You're great welcome. talking with you. Yeah. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Susie Rigdon as a part of Watershed Lit. 
For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org. Read on.